Hi, Vanessa. Hello, Adam. Welcome to Uncertain Things. Welcome. First, I should disclose that I am currently struggling with a week-long lack of sleep, so I do hope my words make grammar right. And also, we are in the midst of an incredibly depressing news cycle. Even if you don't live in the U.S., I'm sure you've heard about the most recent police shootings. It is heart-rending. And we don't want to give it a perfunctory treatment because of the complexity of, of stories around justice reform and racial tensions. Next week, we are actually going to air an episode that we've already recorded about trauma, which did touch a few related topics. And we had it with our friend, social psychologist and recurring guest on the podcast, Misha Thomas. So that's next week. And probably we'll find different angles to, to approach some of these topics in upcoming episodes. But today, put your geopolitical hat on because we are talking about China. But before we get to our um, guest, and actually there's a whole other conversation that I want to have uh, following our uh, previous podcast Um that the kind of a follow-up that I want to do with you in, in a few minutes. But first things first, uh, we, Vanessa and I, ha- are thrilled to to see how many people have been listening recently to Uncertain Things. And first, thank you or welcome. And um, as you may or may not know, part of the point of Vanessa and I starting this podcast is because we were trying to work through a lot of the issues in, in the world today and, and, and to do so um, with with a degree of, of dialectical tensions, Vanessa and I have very different ideas on politics and art and all the things that we discuss in this show, and we bring uh, guests to challenge both of us. Um, but we also are interested in having this dialogue with you, our dear listener. And it would be really interesting to get more of a sense of what you're thinking, what you're interested in, what you disagree with, as, as I always say at the end of the show, come and argue with us. So we are on Twitter and increasingly on Instagram. This has been uh, pushed by our friend and previous guest, Ken Goshen, who is a fantastic painter and also an Instagramophile, which I'm not sure if I'm saying to his credit or discredit. But yeah, we are roaming about in, in these platforms. So whichever one brings you salvation, you can find us there. We are at UncertainPod. And with the plug out of the way, our guest today is Ike Freiman. He is an expert scholar, young scholar on foreign relations and specifically the Chinese theater and the the West trying to calibrate its play mm-hmm. in the bubbling Cold War with China. Mm. His new book is One Belt, One Road, Chinese Power Meets the World. Mm-hmm. And he also had his uh, work published in various publications, including Foreign Policy and The Atlantic. The title of his book, One Belt, One Road, comes from the research that he's done into this initiative, which kind of branded and spearheaded by Xi Jinping. It, it kind of wasn't, it's an interesting initiative in that it didn't really s- start out top down. It was actually just kind of a lot of different things happening that <laughs> President Jinping just kind of decided to call a this kind of really well thought like master planned uh, program to basically reinstate China to its uh, imperial glory. Um, he'll get he'll explain it in fine in much finer detail and with much more nuance than I just did. But just so that you know, when we dive right into it, that's what he's referring to. The story of China is on a lot of people's minds, and especially when we're transitioning away from the Trump administration in the U.S. to Biden's. Yeah, a lot of people. On uh, across the political spectrum, or wondering what Biden is going to do now that we've had uh, four years of a very belligerent 
if potentially feckless stance against China, arguably feckless, that's, that's my, my injecting my view there. But the interesting thing in focusing on the One Belt, One Road initiative is that it tells you several things about how China understands its own foreign policy. It tells mm-hmm. you externally how they're trying to extend their power and influence. It tells you what happens to countries that fall under the wing and influence of the rising Chinese empire. Mm-hmm. And it tells you, and this is one of the most interesting things, in my view, that Ike focuses on, how China domestically understands its international ambitions, what role it seeks to play in the world. I was not expecting to be as, for this this kind of, I guess, dry topic to be as riveting as it was. Learning about the inner workings of China's kind of ambitions and the ways that they talk about uh, how where they want to progress into the future and how that ripples out across the world and, and the actions that are happening right now. I mean, for me, it was a very clarifying, edifying conversation. I think you're insane for thinking that foreign <laughs> policy is a dry topic. <laughs> That's the one topic that has nuclear weapons involved, but fine. We'll go back to culture war and sex <laughs> soon enough. But I, at some point, we will get into more aspects, I think, of the China-American relationship. But it is interesting for me to start with One Belt, One Road, because I think this is the first thing that really made me realize how rapacious China is at this moment. I mentioned it in the interview, but I think it's almost uh, seven, eight years ago that I started seeing the ripples of Xi's ambition reaching my little region in the Mediterranean. Mm -hmm. And you can't help but feel at least a little bit apprehensive as you see this new Silk Road stretching across continents about what this pertains to our world order. Uh, And I think it is one of the most interesting and important topics to explore right now, because we don't know. One point, though, we did record this conversation a couple of weeks ago, and since then, the Biden administration has already shifted to higher gear with uh, China foreign policy. So we invited Ike yesterday to come back and give us a a few follow-up answers on how things have evolved in recent weeks. So for the most part, this interview is a bird's-eye exploration and study of Chinese imperialism in in the way it plays out uh, economically, geopolitically across the world. But to those interested, in the end, we'll attach the more recent news hook and updates because that's that's how journalism works, right? You push the news hook to the very, very end of the interview. You bury it under nearly two hours of total geopolitical wonkery. That's it. That's why we are the top-notch journalists that we are. But before we get to our guest, I do have a few points of housekeeping. I'm not sure if the word is trademarked. Slash, do we, is, for some reason, I feel like housekeeping might be one of those non-PC terms anymore, but I guess we can still keep house. It's not gendered. Really? What's, there's nothing gendered about housekeeping. I, I don't I think know. It, I'm just, I'm just so like oh, on look, guard. Look at you. <laughs> I'm so on guard. Number one, last week in our wonderful interview with the wonderful uh, Batya Ungar Sargon, I was referencing an article by Scott Alexander, the blogger, the, the, the wonderful blogger, your uh, spouse, 
Vanessa actually <laughs> pointed out that I got his name wrong, and I, I think I said oh, something really? like what did you Scott say? Scott Anderson or something, oh. so, something dumb. So and you could I, tell how much I I listened to my wonderful partner, and that I didn't catch that in the room. I should have, but I didn't. I thought there was just another Scott Anderson that I didn't know, and so I just assumed. Well, just assumed. I my sincere apologies to Scott Alexander and Scott Alexander fans. Number two is that I've been thinking a lot, a lot about what. But and I ended up arguing about in the in the ending of the interview about religion, as we were discussing either woke culture or the extremism on the right or both. I I think I flippantly I didn't mean it to be flippant, but I described it as religious behavior, and uh, Batya responded defensively, and and understandably so because she herself is a is devoutly Jewish, and and holds religion in a very warm place in her heart. Whereas I guess I have a, 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 a more complicated relationship with the concept when I can see the value that people draw from it, but I can also see how the tendency towards religiosity can manifest in, in very sinister and even completely secular contexts. But I was just thinking about this and I just wonder if you have any thoughts, Vanessa, it's, I think I started to understand, I think, that part of our disagreement, Batya and mine, was not just about what the definition of religion is, which I think stands, but possibly the understanding of what's happening with some of the more extreme behaviors on the elite left. Whereas I see it as some sort of conf- like re- almost religious conformity to an idea. She sees it as more of a fashion and something that you commit to as a class status. And, and it just, I understood it later on, like working to edit the episode, how much of the exclusionary tactics of the left of constantly demarcating who is in the right and who is in the wrong, who, who has the moral upper hand is a factor in her view of an aristocratic class trying to define itself and prevent others from gaining access into its inner circles. So for her, much of the ecumenical conversation on the left stems from the same impulse that makes people want to wear the right fashion brands in order to separate themselves from the riffraff. Distinguishing the benighted from the woke is, is a shibboleth of status, according to Bhatti, if I understand her correctly. In her version, there's something almost more sinister. It's just tribal for the sake of tribalism, whereas I think... Oddly enough, in my version, I'm, there's almost a little more compassion to it because the religious interpretation means that they are true believers, that they truly do see these propitiations of, of, and, and word control or word hygiene. I read a lot of articles this week about word hygiene as the way to correct the world, to fix the world. And that is religious in my estimate. So I'm just, I wonder if you have any, because uh, you didn't actually voice an opinion in that, in that debate. So I wondered if you want to take the stage now. The most, I didn't, I did not voice an opinion. And in fact, I think I also slightly misinterpreted Batya because I think I kind of, uh, when she, when she was kind of just processing why she doesn't see what's happening as a religious phenomenon or religi- like a religious ad- adjacent phenomenon, um, I kind of just jumped to the conclusion 
probably wrongly that it's because she has positive associations with religion and negative associations with the woke culture and so that but I think that's like a way too simplistic way to think about what she's talking about and so I actually wish I could retract that uh, kind of flippant observation in the moment um I don't think it was that flippant I think you're over harsh I mean if you could call it oversimplification, but it, I think you made a, an accurate point. I think emotionally, that's probably where she's coming from. Mm. It doesn't mean that you were dismissive of how meaningful right. that positive uh, emotion that she has about religion is. But, right. But it's I, true that she was she had this dichotomy. Like She was very protective of religiosity in the way she understood it yeah. as something that is committed to self-improvement and the recognition of the relationship between an individual and the community and the community and something bigger. Right. But what she proposed as a definition for religion was very narrowly tailored to describe the thing that she appreciates about Judaism. And I think what I pushed back was to show, well, sure, but there are other things that we understand as religious that are p- potentially more pernicious. And some of those you could see also in the uh, practices of uh, woke culture and, for that matter, the the some aspects of the Trump cult. Right. I, I mean, I guess I'm, in a way, I kind of... I kind of I th- I don't know if I'm agreeing with both of you, which is a very uncertain things thing to say. But I agree with you in that I do believe the f- folks who are espousing these uh, words and beliefs are true believers. I do think that's it's like coming from a genuine place of um, feeling justified and righteous, um, which and in in, even in just using those words is kind of inherently bringing a, like a bit of a religious vibe um, right, with, the, with exactly. the kind of the, the fervor that it inspires. But I do very think Tom it, Holland. But it, it also has to do with I think I mean when when Bacha says that it, there's, these are like class signifiers. I mean that's like not wrong either. But I'm, I think we can talk about it not just in terms of economic class. There's like a, a kind of feeling of spirit kindred. Ch- kindredness with other people of this like online community that is probably mostly upper class but I would wager kind of crosses classes potentially to like upper and middle potentially even lower as well in terms of like we are one of this this uh, community of people who believe in this way um and so it, it is both a signifier to show you are one of the of the the group um and it is also but it is also a I think in most of the time a a true belief that these people hold does that make sense so you're splitting the baby well <laughs> i don't know i i i guess i wouldn't I, I wouldn't say it's only class i guess i don't think that's quite right and i wouldn't say that it's I, to me as someone who isn't religious it's very easy for me to, to say this smells mm-hmm. of religion to me because i have a bit of an outsider's perspective of what religion is and so i mean it's not wrong to from for someone who has an insider's perspective to be like well this doesn't feel religious to me i mean that's that that does speak to something that I'm I clearly am not grasping about how how some people experience religion and so do is it religious is is being religious like a more communal activity or is it a more introspective either way it's going to manifest in the way you talk about issues so I'm I'm I don't know I guess I'm on brand and uncertain yeah, it's just, it was just on my mind because I th- after releasing the Batya interview, there was a, I heard an interview between um, I think it was Jonah Goldberg and Shadi Hamid, and they were it was basically an hour and a half of them talking about how religion fills that hole. Yeah. Sorry, how how politics fill that hole left by religion, and you know it's an old argument, but it just reminded me like yeah. It's a very specific way of looking at things, which I just took for granted. And Batya, I guess materialist that she is. 
saw more class and fashion where mm-hmm, I mm-hmm. saw faith and belief. Well, maybe we should also bring Shadi Hamid on. We'll see if we can, if he, if he'll play ball. It'll right. be interesting. Put it into the ether. See if he, li- yes. maybe he's listening right now. But until then, and with that, and whatever our segue is, I, Freeman, back to China. We're talking about China today. We're not talking about culture war. We're talking about China, which is also kind of culture war. But never mind. With that, Ike Freiman. Ike Freiman, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. You're going to be basically educating us about a topic that we only have a very vague, dilettantish understanding of. So, so I, I hope we'll be able to actually hold our hands through this very important topic, which has kind of been looming over some of our other conversations until now. But before that, tell us, who are you? Well, thanks so much for having me. I am right now a PhD candidate at the University of Oxford, where I am finishing up a doctoral project about Chinese mega projects in Greenland and how U.S.-China competition intersects with other themes like climate change in the, in the changing Arctic. So this project of, on Belton Road has been several years in the making. It started in 2015. So I spent a summer as a research assistant to a professor at Tsinghua University in Beijing, sort of like the Stanford of Beijing. And they have a, a think tank and an institute. Institute. Uh, and they were doing research on the, the politics of Chinese investments in Europe and trying to quantify how Chinese money investments in high-tech industries, investments in auto companies were changing European perceptions and hopefully making Europeans more interested and favorable towards China. And I was struck that that summer, it was the summer of 2015, uh, you may recall this was a time when the Chinese Stock market was melting down, and it looks like this could be their 1929, the beginning of the end of the Chinese economic miracle. And yet there was this phrase, this slogan, Aitai Ilu in Chinese, literally one belt, one road, which was on the tip of everyone's lips. It was on party television every night, and it was clearly going to be central to the legacy of Xi Jinping, who at this point was a relatively new leader, had been fully in charge of the country for less than two years. And I was struck by the fact, first of all, that I had never heard of this Itai Ilu thing back in the States. And even though I was studying Chinese politics as an undergraduate, it seemed bizarre that this thing, which was so central to the discussion in Beijing and was an area of research from some of the country's most prestigious academics and think tanks was not being discussed at all in the West. And then when I heard the price tag, the fact that it could potentially involve the spending of trillions of dollars in investments all around the world, it occurred to me, this is the story of the decade at least. Then Harvard gave me some money to do uh, a trip around South and Southeast Asia, interviewing local officials in various countries where China had done uh, great big investment projects. The one I selected was this port that went on to become world famous, but at the time was completely unknown. It is a mega port and a sort of industrial zone wannabe city surrounding that mega port called Hambantota in the southern part of Sri Lanka. This is a t- completely beautiful part of the country. I would recommend people to go. There's an elephant sanctuary. There's surfing. There's beautiful beaches. But this is a part of Sri Lanka that was devastated by a tsunami. A lot of it is overgrown. Most of the houses don't have glass in the windows and so forth. M- most of the local people survive 
they, they work in salt fields. It's not a prosperous part of the country. It's not a part of the country where heavy industry is really a thing or a, part, a place where you could expect uh, massive investments in transportation or logistics infrastructure being viable. And yet the Chinese had this idea in collaboration with Sri Lankan authorities that they were going to transform this sleepy little town next to the elephant sanctuary into the largest port in South Asia because it sits astride these sea lanes that all of these merchant ships and oil tankers traverse when they're going between the Persian Gulf and East Africa and the Suez Canal and the Straits of Malacca, which connects the Indian Ocean to Asia. And so the Chinese had this idea, and the Sri Lankans liked this idea very much, that they could transform this town, which also happened to be the hometown of the Sri Lankan president, um, from nothing into a global, uh, a, a city and a port of global importance. But the project flopped. They spent over a billion dollars on it, up to $1.3 billion in total loans. And yet the Sri Lankans found themselves completely unable to pay this back. And so the year I visited and interviewed local officials and so forth, it was uh, the Sri Lankans had to renegotiate. And they ended up transferring the equity in this project back to the Chinese on a 99-year lease. So already what you saw here is kind of the impression that this is a debt trap for, for developing countries. China throws a lot of money to, to help regions in crisis, to, to have big infrastructure projects, and then they, they find themselves in arrears, and then China is able to exert more soft power, kind of like your, your local gangster. Exactly. So this became the meme. And I first visited in January of 2017. By 2018, uh, I visited again, just in time for the handover. Representatives of basically every major government, representatives from think tanks, journalists, academics were all piling into Sri Lanka, trying to figure out what the hell had actually happened. A 99-year lease is significant for a number of reasons. It's also, apart from being just practically uh, substantively significant, since it means the Chinese could do whatever they wanted with that facility, potentially even militarizing it. It's also symbolic because the British got Hong Kong on a 99-year lease. So it indicated that maybe the Chinese were considering turning around this neo-colonial model or this old colonial model through which they themselves had been exploited uh, in the 19th and early 20th centuries and beginning to think about how they could impose that on the world. And this culminates uh, later on in 2018 with a major speech that Vice President Mike Pence makes at the Hudson Institute in Washington, D.C., where he effectively announces a declaration of Cold War against China. He calls out the Chinese Communist Party for a bunch of practices that he describes as malicious. But the icing on the cake, he says, is that China is using debt and what he calls predatory economic practices uh, to lure uh, poor or gullible countries into debt traps. And he says, if you want an example of the debt trap, you should look no further than Sri Lanka. And he talks in specifically about the Hamantota port. So it was actually not just uh, the media that generated this 
storyline. It was actually the Trump administration itself, which wanted to use the Humbantota case as an opportunity to explain one belt, one road uh, to the entire world. The problem is that the Trump administration got it wrong. And the debt trap story is actually a very misleading way to understand what actually happened. I think the Trump administration, by making the argument that China is coercing all of its partner countries into taking out these loans, missed out on the much more interesting and disturbing story, which is that China doesn't have to coerce most of its partners to take out loans and sign up for projects. Most of these par partners are perfectly willing. They understand the stakes and they understand the risks that the project might not work out and that the Chinese might take it over. And so when we start digging into the Sri Lankan domestic politics, which are technical, but a little bit, I think, actually, I think quite, quite interesting, uh, we learn that the mechanism and the playbook that the Chinese use one step at a time for deepening their commercial and their political interests in the countries where they operate. And this is not just a story about the Chinese being a predatory actor. It's actually a much more uh, two-sided story about how China finds a way of working together with local elites in the places where they do business, where everyone can win. So we've established the general impression that Westerners have about the One Belt, One Road initiative. But you argue in the book that in order to properly understand it, we need to see it as the nexus of several different developments and goals. So let's dive into that. So the first element is the actual infrastructure that China is building. This begins in the late 1990s and early 2000s, when China is preparing to enter the World Trade Organization. And it's also looking at what has been a decade of double-digit annual compound economic growth, an economic miracle like basically the world has never seen. There is a reformist premier, number two, in China named Zhu Rongji. Mr. Zhu looks at the data and he just extrapolates them forward a decade or two. And he realizes it could actually be the case that China is consuming more than half of the world's iron ore more than half of the world's timber, more than half of the world's copper, more than half of the world's zinc. We don't have these resources at home. So we need vertically integrated supply chains. We need our companies to go out into the world and not just rely on foreign suppliers to get the raw materials they need to do their manufacturing. We actually need them to go out and take ownership stakes in some of these companies or th that are doing the extraction or the mines themselves. And we need to think about building the infrastructure, the transportation and logistics infrastructure needed to get all of those supplies, raw materials to China. And then also thinking about the Chinese, the pathway of Chinese economic growth, uh, which is at least for the last two decades has been driven mostly by manufacturing, not by services. The question becomes, well, how does China actually get all of this finished, pro all these finished products that it's making? most of which it's not consuming at home, to the, to the market, to the customer, which, which are generally speaking in Europe and in North America. And so what happens over the course of the 2000s is there is this explosion in investment, investment within China to build the equivalent of you know, this interstate highway system from scratch and so forth, entire cities where none existed before and all the rest, but also uh, to invest money abroad. 
And this happens, there's this, this tsunami of foreign investment that grows and grows and grows. Between 2005 and today, Chinese firms have invested over $2 trillion overseas. A lot of this, particularly in the 2000s, was happening without any coordination at all from the central government. And it was a wild west. And one of the things that Xi Jinping wanted to do when he came in was to give this some kind of organizing concept. And One Belt, One Road is part of his effort to exert some control over that. We are talking about several trends that were developing over over several decades of Chinese outward investment that that, that then got folded into uh, uh, or under a single title, which is the One Belt, One Road. This is not a top-down program that was imagined by government planners and geopolitical strategists, but rather an existing reality where money was going out of China and developing investments around the world and, and, and then basically circumscribed into this grand narrative or grand design. Exactly. If you're going to tell the political economy story of the Belt and Road, this is basically it. So now what happens when, when Xi Jinping gets into power? What changes in terms of the way the, this amalgam of projects redefines itself? When Xi Jinping comes into power, the Communist Party leadership is starting to get concerned that there's no control over all of this money flooding overseas. There's a desire to direct that investment into more targeted areas that will further the national interest. And the idea of One Belt, One Road is just to do that. So one of the things that is entailed through One Belt, One Road is private actors who are trying to take money out of China for random reasons, like investing in a luxury hotel or buying real estate you know, for their mistress, that gets restricted through a variety of technical uh, barriers to taking your money out. And instead, Chinese state banks, which basically have the backing of the money printing machine and the savings of every Chinese household and every Chinese business, start getting told to lend to certain kinds of businesses that are making great big capital investments, like airports, roads, uh, mines, not very glamorous, but totally essential infrastructure that makes the global economy tick. The Humbantot report is an example of this. Essentially, what will happen is a representative from a state-owned enterprise will go to an official in a potential partner country, let's take Sri Lanka, and they say, hey, how would you like to build this megaport in Humbantota that the World Bank and the Asian Development Bank and the Japanese and the Americans and all your other potential lenders won't support because they don't think it's credit worthy. They're not sure that it can pay for itself. We will make that money happen. If you sign a contract for a Chinese state-owned enterprise to come and build the thing. So you're saying that basically China filled the role of the subprime mortgage industry. Yeah, in a way. They go to countries, particularly in Africa or South Asia or Southeast Asia, that have limited access to capital because they can't you know, issue bonds and borrow for cheap the way that a, a developed economy like the United States or Germany can. And these countries are, for a long time, have been very dependent on big multilateral lenders like the World Bank to fund big infrastructure projects. The Chinese say, essentially, we won't, we'll give you this money and we won't attach any of the strings that the multilateral lenders or the Americans or the Japanese might 
In other words, we're not going to make you wait for a decade to do an environmental impact assessment to see whether the local bird population is affected. Or we won't just take back the funding if you violate some of our current political uh, norms, for instance, like the way the Bush administration uh, uh, took back funding from uh, uh, African countries that that, uh, uh, legalized abortion. Yeah. No, and we're not going to make you make changes in your domestic politics. We're not going to demand that you hold free and open elections as a condition for getting the money. The money in that sense is no strings attached. And more importantly, particularly if you're a, if you're a country that has democratic elections like Sri Lanka, we can mean we can give you the money on a time scale that construction can actually begin before you next face the voters. So you're not you're not making a commitment that to build something where the benefits will be enjoyed by whoever succeeds you. You can actually get the reap some of the fruits of this partnership into your local domestic context very, very soon. And so this is an attractive value proposition to a lot of elites in less developed partner countries that have ideas for how they want to build out their own infrastructure. And the Chinese are willing to partner. Yeah, this takes me back to the conversation we had with um, NYU professors Bruce Bueno de Mesquita and Alistair Smith wrote the Dictator's Handbook. Alistair specifically goes on a tear about foreign aid, which he thinks is is a, a terrible example of unintended consequences because it essentially gives a lifeline to dying dictatorships. The money that comes from foreign aid usually ends up in the pockets of the elites and it gives them the the no incentive to actually promote the reforms that are supposedly attached as strings to the money. And it sounds like China is starting to fill a similar role, but even more openly by not attaching any strings in the first place and making the the money and the political boons of the 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 aid more tangible and more lucrative to the the leaders and therefore shoring up uh, potentially despotic regimes around the world. In a sense, yes, it it's an insurance policy in multiple senses for an elite in a recipient country. Because once China has invested billions of dollars in you, they now have an interest in keeping you in power so they can get their money back and they can make their projects succeed. So it's a very harmonious relationship between the elites and and the Chinese investors. Yeah, the, the analogy that I use to explain this to Americans, people in the defense establishment, is it's kind of like an arms deal. When, the, when Saudi Arabia, Saudi Arabia will probably not be buying any weapons from the United States under the Biden administration, but for decades, Saudi Arabia has bought an enormous amount of weapons from the United States, and they rarely use them. So it's sort of curious, what are the Saudis actually buying? And when, if you talk to Saudi diplomats or Saudi business people, they will tell you they're not actually just buying the system itself, the plane or the missile or the drone. They're, they're buying the relationship because the United States is not about to sell weapons to a country and then and then turn around and reverse ties. They might have a period of being more close or less close, more aligned or less aligned. But if if the Saudis really care about their relationship with the United States and they are willing to pay to keep it stable in the long term, then buying a bunch of American weapon systems, which have to be serviced and require American technical experts to come to their country and train their people on how to use them, 
It's a long-term investment or a long-term insurance policy in keeping Saudi Arabia basically aligned with the United States and reducing the downside risk that uh, an event like the murder of the, the journalist Jamal Khashoggi would totally derail the relationship and lead the Americans to, to cut ties. So it's a similar kind of logic for a, a, a Belt and Road partner country to do a great big deal with China. What they're getting is more than just the project itself. It's some kind of unspoken political understanding. It, it creates the, the terms on which new client relationships can be developed, basically. And now countries around the world understand that if you want to be in the, on the good graces of China, and if, if this is the, the side on the, up, on the growing, brewing global superpower Cold War, you now know how to get your name on a list. Right. Well, a, a lot of these countries, I should say, don't like the idea of a U.S.-China Cold War. Most of the developing world was not a winner of the U.S.-Soviet Cold War. Uh, a lot of countries had their governments toppled, were interfered with in various ways. Some countries did quite well in the Cold War because they were able to stay non-aligned. And I think there's an interest, particularly in this new global economy, where By and large, most countries in the world do a lot of trade with the United States. A huge number of countries in the world have some kind of security relationship with the United States. They don't want to burn that bridge. On the other hand, China is, by multiple metrics, the largest economy in the world already. It's growing very fast. It makes a large and growing basket of products that everyone uses. Why burn that bridge either? You want, you want it both ways. So it's, what, what China would say is it's... It's a framework for affiliating with China where, where you win and China wins. And it's, it's, they'd say it's not zero sum because it doesn't mean that we're forcing you to choose between China and the United States. But it, but it is on some level a declaration that you're interested in a long-term productive relationship with China. Okay, but what's the, what's the, the fine print? What's the, is, is it really a win-win? And if it is a win-win, is it something that the West should be paying attention to should be concerned about or just saying great here's a superpower that wants to uh, uh, develop these relations with with developing countries and they might in the process actually lift up a lot of those struggling economies so wonderful Exa- exactly at the time when when uh, America and the West are deciding to recede and recoil from their global commitments and involvements that's the one of the few things that seems to have bipartisan support in the US right now so what's the problem exactly right what's not to love so here's what here's what's maybe not to love you have to look at what the Stop looking at what the Chinese called exoprop or propaganda for foreign audiences and start looking at the Chinese, the, the, the propaganda for domestic audiences, the stuff that's produced just in Chinese and either if it's translated at all, not disseminated widely abroad. And I talk about this a lot in the book, but I think that the key, if you want to understand it, is a six-part documentary series called One Belt, One Road, Itai Ilu, which aired on Chinese Central Television in 2016. And this tells the story in outrageously over-the-top form of why Xi Jinping proposed this idea and how it relates to the ancient Silk Road. And essentially, it's China explaining to its own population, here is what we're trying to do. Here is how it is worthwhile that we, who are in many ways still a developing country, 
are going to be spending astronomical amounts of money overseas rather than helping our own people. So here's how they spin it. 2,000 years ago, China has this emperor, Han Udi, who, by the way, is widely regarded as the greatest emperor in Chinese history. He doubled the territorial extent of the Chinese empire. He presided over five decades of prosperity at home. He oversaw the flowering of culture and arts in the Han Dynasty. He's every Chinese person of any level of education knows this guy. He is the, the, the pinnacle, the apex of Chinese uh, territorial extent, uh, imperial China's cultural flourishing. And previously to Xi Jinping, he has never been credited with the founding of the ancient Silk Road because the ancient Silk Road was not a thing to be founded. It was a spontaneous uh, network of trade routes that rose and fell and shifted over the centuries. And it didn't really pick up until centuries after his death. But in the propaganda, it is very clearly stated that uh, Han Udi founded the ancient Silk Road by sending some adventurers into Central Asia to start trading with the nomadic tribes there. And the historical narrative, which then is laid out in great detail over the rest of the series, is that this ushers in this golden age of world history with China at the center. And the reason is. The Silk Road merchants bring Chinese products, specifically silk, to the Europeans who are portrayed as these hapless Westerners in togas trying to do astronomy and math and getting everything wrong. And then they see the Romans see Chinese silk and decide, well, this is the greatest thing we've ever seen. We need to trade with China. So I'm simplifying this, but really not by much. And the details are in the book. It's a, it's a crazy story because it's not one that we as Westerners would have heard. But the story goes, this goes on for over a thousand years. And there's a, a Silk Road spirit governed by Oriental wisdom. These are quotes. And under the Silk Road spirit, the world order is harmonious because China is the most dynamic economy. China has all of the world's most important technologies. And so the world is held together without much conflict or strife, because everyone needs to go to China to get their products. So then we're told the West, in their bid to find faster and faster ways to get to China, accidentally discover the new world. And you get the world history takes this random, wrongful detour, where the West colonizes the Americas, achieves an industrial revolution, somehow takes over the world. And yet, this is portrayed as a very, very bad thing. All of a sudden, the music turns scary and dark. There's smoke, right? There's images of war and fires and people screaming, right? There's environmental destruction. It causes global warming, strife between states. This, we're told, this is what zero-sum foreign policy is. This is a Western idea, right? We win, so you must lose. Fortunately, and then, then the music gets bright and brassy and optimistic, the Chinese Communist Party takes over in China in 1949. And very quickly, in a matter of decades, skipping over the Great Leap Forward and the Cultural Revolution and all of the horrendous things that the CCP did, they make China wealthy and powerful again. And all of a sudden, we're shown Chinese aircraft taking off Chinese high-speed rail, these beautiful green vistas of the Chinese landscape, Chinese satellites launching into space, Chinese computer manufacturers. And we're told, China's back, baby. And the developing world is now looking to China to restore this ancient model based on Oriental wisdom, which 
proposes a better way for nations to interact with each other than the Western model. And then we get Xi Jinping with reverent music announcing One Belt, One Road. And then we see, ah, so this is really what it's all about. It's restoring an imperial idea in which China is at the center. And yeah, maybe in the process, China will have to make some sacrifices, send some representatives out into the world, expend some resources to build some stuff abroad. But what it's going to get in the long term is going to pay for itself because the world is going to recognize China's status as the central technological, cultural, political force. And Xi Jinping, of course, is the emperor, the neo-emperor, who's the architect of that restoration. The, do you see foreign statesmen coming to China to kowtow and, and give uh, the proper ceremonial tribute to Xi Jinping in that film? Or is that just implied? Well, the film was, be was made before the Belt and Road forums had begun. But we can talk about this idea of the tributary system. The tributary system is slightly different. Um, it's this loose metaphor for how the later dynasties of China, particularly the Ming dynasty and the Qing dynasty, which the Ming was from the, the 1300s to the 1600s, and the Qing was from the 1600s to the early 20th century, basically how these two dynasties interacted with foreigners. And the story has been told, historians still debate the nuances of it, but essentially foreigners like Koreans, Vietnamese, Central Asians, Malaysians, come and kowtow, which means they prostrate themselves before the Chinese emperor. And they, they say, we submit ourselves totally to you, uh, son of heaven. Please give us access to the Chinese market. Please give us access to Chinese technology. Please give us the right to rule back at home. And the Chinese emperor says, essentially, thank you for your submission. Um, here are some gifts that you are made only in China. Here are your trading privileges with China you may go home and rule at the behest of the emperor. And so obviously the, the nuances were more complicated and it was not a, a totally formalized system, but this is an idea that exists both in how Westerners who learn about Chinese history learn about this and also to some degree in how Chinese people who've learned about imperial history in high school uh, understand what the history is. And this is, this is actually written out in Chinese history textbooks that are like required to take the national university entrance exam. So this is something that everyone basically knows and understands, a reference point. And so, yes, when Xi Jinping hosts a conference called the Belt and Road Forum and representatives from many dozens of countries, including Vladimir Putin, but lots of others, come and talk about how great the Belt and Road is and are basically jockeying and begging for China's commercial favor. Essentially, that's you can think about it as a modern form of the tributary model. They're kowtowing and they're doing their performances of submission in order to get the tangible reward. So in a sense, that is what Xi Jinping is promising to restore. It's neo-imperial in a couple of ways. And of course, he himself gets to be at the center. He's the top dog. He's on the red carpet. So clearly, this is a, a very powerful narrative that's being propagated to the Chinese public uh, of essentially a new a new imperial order on the horizon here, um, or better said, a reinstatement of an old imperial order on the horizon here. And so, and, and I think you said earlier that when you started studying this, I mean, 
it was everywhere, like on everybody's lips. It was, this was like the, um, the motivating phrase that was pushing everyone forward. And yet at the same time, you mentioned that the West or uh, folks in the West, perhaps academics, journalists, I'm not sure who exactly you were referring to, but weren't really paying attention. So I want to go back to that, that question about why weren't we, weren't we aware of this kind of momentum building and has that changed now? It's was, is it, is it, what is it that's forcing us to pay attention now if, if we are? So that's a very good question. For the early years of the Belt and Road, I think many American policymakers thought it was a whole lot of nothing. China, as we discussed, had already been doing all of this for an investment. Most of it was pretty chaotic. And the idea that Xi Jinping had come in and all of it suddenly was part of a master plan didn't make a lot of sense because many of the most prominent projects, if you were paying attention, that were being branded as Belt and Road had been initiated before he took power. And so I think there was this sense that, well, maybe it's a whole lot of hype with no real substance. Um, and it was hard to separate what, what specific investments were made uh, that wouldn't have been made otherwise, and which you know, China is a huge economy. Its companies invest abroad. You know, they, they would continue to have invested even if Xi Jinping had not come to power and announced this. So what actually is different from how it would otherwise have been? I think the Trump administration called attention to this because it recognized that a huge number of countries, including countries that the United States has long had really close, intimate relations with, uh, have signed up for the Belt and Road. The Australian province, or Australian state of Victoria signed up for the Belt and Road. Italy, a NATO ally, signed up for the Belt and Road. Uh, over a dozen Latin American countries have signed up. Over 10 countries in the Caribbean have signed up. So the Trump administration, as it took a more hawkish turn towards China, began to see this global expansion plan for Chinese commercial power in a much more threatening Light. And I think also at that time, cracks began to appear in the initiative itself. First of all, there was some opposition within China because, in fact, for the first few years of Xi Jinping's term, it wasn't really very carefully run. And a lot of money was channeled into projects that were badly thought out and were destined to fail. So some people at home said, well, this is bad policy. We need to be more disciplined. And then there was also a, a recognition that you know that can have consequences if we overstep, if we're not careful about how we do it, we could actually get a backlash from the Americans or from people in recipient countries who don't want to see uh, their, their governments taking out huge loans. I think for the last three years or so, China has been in a sort of prolonged rethink or reset period where they're trying to figure out how to keep the best elements of it while slowly winding down the elements of it that don't work so well. Interesting. I remember when I first came into awareness about the One Built, One Road initiative. It was because of projects that were suddenly popping up around me. There was the, I think it was around 2014, 2013, when there was uh, offshore uh, gas extraction deals that Israel made with China. And then during the Greek debt crisis, I remember there's a lot of reliance on Chinese partnership to... Uh, rekindle forlorn infrastructure. It's it's getting a little eerie because you could see all these Chinese projects suddenly 
uh, percolating around the, the Mediterranean. Uh, so, so clearly something was up. But still, I'm not sure I'm hearing from you why the West should be on alert about all of this. So it's interesting you bring up Greece. Greece is obviously a chapter in my book, so I, I, I've looked into this in great detail. When the Chinese first started buying up assets in Greece, it was after the Greek financial crisis around 2011, 2012. And they were invited to do so by the Europeans. This was at a time Greece was way overextended. They had this debt that could never be paid for. And all of the, the German banks, all these European banks that had lent to Greece were in deep, deep trouble. The question was, well, we just need as much foreign investment as we can possibly get into Greece. And the Europeans uh, create, created this board that essentially forced the Greek government to sell off a bunch of assets, it's critical infrastructure of the country, which was owned by the state. And the Chinese swooped in and just bought some of it, and at bargain basement prices too. It wasn't until much more recently, and by the way, this isn't the only European port that the Chinese have acquired. Chinese have investments in all kinds of European ports. So in, in Italy, in the Netherlands, and so it wasn't really until 2017-18 uh, that the Trump administration started focusing on this debt trap argument. and popular views of China began to become much more negative in the West, that the Europeans, for example, began to say, oh, crap, we need a, an investment screening system so we can, we can prevent China from buying any more critical infrastructure. And the, the, the solution which was focused on by the Trump administration is, above all, we need to keep China out of digital infrastructure. Huawei in the 5G systems is one example of this. But that's not the only one. Uh, there's undersea fiber optic cables. Uh, there's satellites. And then there's software. There's TikTok and other sorts of Chinese apps, which could be surveillance uh, devices for the Chinese Communist Party uh, and other WeChat and other kinds of software that are developed by Chinese uh, tech companies that can be used for financial technology to send money across borders uh, outside of the bounds of control of uh, United States regulators. There's all kinds of other, uh, it's a Pandora's box of potential uh, problems for the United States if China can really roll out some of its digital projects, uh, products along the Belt and Road, because it, it can create a sphere where the United States has really no power at all to set standards and rules for how data is used, uh, for how data is collected and for how money is transferred. So here's a question, and I have my own answer to it, but I wonder if yours is similar or completely different. Are we mostly worried about this just because as, as Americans or as people who've grown accustomed to an uh, uh, American-centric world, we are not sure what a bipolar world is going to look like or what, could be, what it could mean to American economic stability that the um that the gravity is shifting or is there something else is there something deeper than 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 just economic dominance so this is this is a key question and i talk about this in the conclusion of of my book it's uh, there's obviously plenty of reasons why uh economic dynamo and that's what china is right that continues to grow incredibly fast which is run by a ruthless authoritarian regime which is what the Chinese Communist Party is. 
which is spending trillions of dollars overseas and investing trillions of dollars overseas. There's plenty of reasons to think that that's a threat. But it's because it's so massive and it's so structural, it's really important before recommending policies to think about what the national interests are that matter most and how, how this thing actually touches on them. I argue in the book, and I'm, about to, I'm living in the UK now, I'm studying at Oxford, and I'm about to write this essay that the UK needs to think through its options because maybe its national interests don't line up perfectly with the United States in this regard. You know, there's, there's one scenario in which the UK says, okay, well, if the US and China are sliding into Cold War, we're on Team America all the way, and we'll accept the costs. But there's another pathway that although it's unlikely that the UK could conceivably take, where they'd say, actually, we still have this alliance with the United States. We're not going to break that. But we will associate with One Belt, One Road. We might not let Huawei into our 5G systems, but we have no problem with letting a Chinese enterprise build a nuclear power plant or help us expand the London underground if they're going to make a good offer. We have no problem with letting London become the global hub uh, for uh, China to internationalize its currency. Why not? We can play the two superpowers against each other and get rewards from each and have more autonomy. And people in Washington will take us seriously if we do that. So there's a possibility, and I think, as I argue in the book, a really strong logic that many countries that fell totally into lockstep with the United States in Cold War I might not do the same in Cold War II. And an example, I was talking earlier about Saudi Arabia. Many of the United States' closest allies in the Middle East have not banned Huawei. And in fact, are continuing to let China to invest in their most sensitive stuff, including the Israelis, by the way, who supply a lot of essential uh, uh, military technology to the United States. They're letting the Chinese invest in early stage tech startups. And they are resisting uh, pressure from the United States under Trump and now under Biden uh, to restrict that investment. So if you're Washington, you need to think through a couple of possibilities. One is a possibility that One Belt, One Road fizzes out on its own. China has some kind of domestic economic issue. Right? It's possible that this will not be a serious thing. It's also possible that China won't bother to try to really turn it into a geopolitical block. It will just keep lending and trying to get friendly people in power around the world. And if that's the case, maybe it is something we can live with. It's something we might not like. It's something we might push back against if, say, China tries to get influence in Mexico. But if China wants to build some roads in Africa or buy some you know, lithium mines in Bolivia, who cares, essentially? But there's another way to think about it, which is this neo-imperial idea that China is propagating at home uh, is essentially an, an idea for what the world order will be once China overtakes the US as the top dog. And if we think that this is scary and we don't want to have to go to Beijing, to Beijing as supplicants, and we don't want our, our allies and partners to have to do that either, then we need to think very hard about pushing back. And in particular, we really want to keep it from becoming a mega geopolitical bloc, a la what the Soviets built in the 1940s and 50s, uh, in which lots of countries are completely locked into Chinese systems 
because they have Huawei with their telecom networks and they're using Beidou instead of GPS. And they're not using any Western software products. They're using Alipay and WeChat Pay instead of Western banking products. We have no visibility into how these systems works, right? We have no ability to influence them. China gets sucks up all their data and controls them. Maybe that's a really, really scary thing. And we should obstruct it however we can. And before we go into that question, something that we talked about before, you and I, even if, if the, the story of debt trap is overhyped and, and as, as a rhetorical move, there's a lot of, of fine print that comes with Chinese power, influence and infrastructure. And we discussed the story of the African Union headquarters. It's a building where dignitaries from all African countries have their periodical conferences. And it's a new building that was constructed as part of the Belt and Road Initiative by China. I interviewed a number of people who, who are involved in, in the, the African Union, and it was known to everyone, to all members, that China had the entire building rigged with wiretaps. And what's more, had exclusive control of all the telecommunications infrastructure. So everyone knows that the information there is completely visible and exposed to the Chinese government. But as you said in the beginning, that's something that they were willing to live with. This is something that they, they just acceded to. Yes. And remember, the United States has been caught with its proverbial fingers in the cookie jar spying on everyone. There was a huge scandal a few years ago where the, the, the U.S. intelligence community was reading Angela Merkel's email. Right. So everyone around the world, if you're a government or a defense expert or you're a, you, you run the intelligence services in a country like Malaysia or the United Arab Emirates, you're assuming that the American intelligence is reading all your stuff and is listening to all your conversation. I mean, how can you not at this point? And so if you've already made peace with that reality, what's really so scary about Beijing having the same access? Right, which is actually leading to the to the what what I wish to be the, the I think the the big, big concluding piece of our conversation. And if it's okay, if we keep you just like a, a, few, a few minutes yeah, longer, because I think this is um, now we're hitting where where uh, a lot of this interest is actually coming from. And when we're thinking about what a Chinese world order looks like, we can't help but seeing the the relationship between the, the Communist Party and, the, and, and human rights and, and civil liberties. And just earlier, when we were preparing for this interview, Vanessa and I got into one of our regular debates about this issue. And, and she, she said Vanessa lived in Chile for uh, a, a great part of her uh, 20s and, 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 and saw the resentment uh, firsthand of, of, you know, of South America towards the, the American empire. And she responded, well... <laughs> Uh, I, I'm, I'm not sure that America's record on civil liberties and, and human rights is not quite as bright as you'd think from our posturing against China on these issues, you know, which is what, what I would say what's what Trump told O'Reilly in that infamous interview. But but never mind. Yeah, we kill people, too. But my position always on this issue is that the hypocrisy that America lives with implies that we're at least trying to hold ourselves up to the lie of human rights and civil liberties. Whereas with the Chinese world order, I'm not even sure that that is part of the vocabulary. There's nothing for them to be hypocritical about. So you might say that this is, is a comparison without a difference. But I, 
I don't think that's true. I think that having the 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 principle, even if you embarrassingly, disgustingly, almost criminally fail to live up to it, is better than not having the principle at all, especially when you are establishing or trying to establish an hegemonic world order. I agree. And I couldn't disagree more with uh, the framing that you put before, that there's some sort of moral moral uh, comparison that we can make between uh, how American foreign policy and domestic policy has has done various things, has treated minorities, has approached the war on terror and so forth and how the Chinese Communist Party governs at home. Uh, what is happening in Xinjiang is, is the great tragedy and the great crime of our times. It fits every definition of genocide that I have read under international law. It is happening in plain sight. And the world is not quite powerless to do nothing about it. The world is just choosing to do nothing about it. Uh, there are there, there is a bill that passed the House of Repre- U.S. House of Representatives last year called the Uyghur Forced Labor Protection Act, which says that companies. But by the way, China has is farming out enslaved Uyghur uh, laborers to private companies to make Nikes and other essential products that are exported to foreign markets and are consumed unmarked. And so this is obviously banned in the United States and in Europe. You can't sell products that are made with forced labor, but unless there's been an investigation that has proved that, uh, there's not a presumption of guilt. What this law would do is it would create a presumption that any good imported from China had been made with forced labor and put the responsibility on the importing company to prove otherwise. In other words, it would force China to either sacrifice a huge amount of its export market to the United States or audit its supply chains and give companies uh, enough uh, insight and transparency to be able to satisfy a regulator that, no, what we are selling you, this pair of sneakers, is made with workers who were not coerced, workers who were paid for their labor and so forth. So I think there are things that the West can do that it has not done. And there's things that the West has, opportunities that the West has missed to crack down on China on human rights uh, for a very long time. Uh, the, 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 the ongoing crisis, humanitarian crisis in Tibet is more than five decades old. So in a sense, the West has invited this upon itself by communicating implicitly to the CCP that it can get away with these kinds of abuses. But I think as we look forward to a 20th, 21st century, where China is increasingly powerful enough to expel the United States Navy from its maritime periphery, to begin to build islands in other countries' sovereign, sovereign waters in contravention of all international law and so forth. Uh, the, the entire world has an interest in coming up with a common set of rules and expectations that China should have to abide by or face consequences. But does the world care about Chinese um, territorial rapaciousness as much as it cares about its economic growth? Because it seems to me that it does not. And like, what, what does the West care about Hong Kong or Taiwan, for instance? Well, Hong Kong and Taiwan are different issues. Uh, they're each complex, and we, can, we could talk about them separately. I think 
the West cares because China has made, or the, the Communist Party regime has made clear that it is not, it will happily ignore international laws and centuries old conventions of how states should behave when it feels it can get a benefit from doing that. And if we have been unable or unwilling to deter them when they were relatively small economically and relatively weak militarily, we are not going to get more able to influence their behavior as they grow richer and stronger. And so while it is still very hard to imagine that they could impose a Xinjiang-like model on Hong Kong, if you fast forward 10 or 20 or 30 years in the future and you begin to exercise your imagination, one has much less certainty about how far they could push the envelope. If they're willing to build islands in the middle of another country's international waters and it, ignore a ruling from the International Court of Justice in The Hague, then what international law would they be willing to respect? If we were to get into a conflict with them, would, could we trust them to respect uh, chemical weapons or biological weapons ban? Could we trust them not to uh, spread, to, to proliferate nuclear weapons uh, to countries near the United States, near American borders? to get into geopolitical advantage, as the Soviets tried to do in the 1960s. There's all kinds of frightening tail risks, which I should stress are not on the table now. But international law matters, because a world without international law is a very frightening place. And while it can be hard to see the connection, what China is doing in Xinjiang has truly global implications. And we are right now living through a window of opportunity for the rest of the world to unite around a common set of expectations. And there are some signs that this is beginning to happen. You see the Japanese, the Americans, the Indians, the Australians, and now recently the Germans and the Dutch and the British using this term Indo-Pacific. This is a new region. It's a regional creation. It didn't exist before. But the Indo-Pacific concept means the Indian Oceans and Pacific Oceans are linked. This entire maritime swath of the world is, it ha that, the, that all of these countries have different national interests. They approach this, this, this part of the world differently, but they can all agree. Ships and planes should be able to navigate freely in international waters in this region. And if China wants to harass them for doing that, all of the other countries in this region will stand strong against China. And I think that's a good first step, but I think we can do more in the digital domain by setting standards for how China collects and uses data. We can do more on human rights by saying, well, if China is not going to sign onto basic international treaties for, uh, for prohibiting forced labor, then there will be consequences. And I think that we are now living through a rapidly closing window of opportunity to band together as an international community and get China to move its behavior into the bounds of what is acceptable. So how can the Biden administration do that? According to your own upcoming essay, you're saying that even a country like the, with a special relationship with America, like the UK, um, might be better off 
allying itself at least partially with China or at least or a, abandoning the U.S. monopoly on on geopolitical thinking, which means in the long run becoming more and more comfortable potentially with with Chinese infringement of international law or or human rights or civil liberties. Definitely anything that definitely incentivizes them to keep on turning a blind uh, eye to um, civil rights infringement domestically, in, as in mainland China, but also globally. So wh- what can a Biden administration do if it actually wants to... to, to uh, grab on this shrinking window of opportunity? Yeah, this is the million dollar question. I think number one thing not to do is what Trump did and say, America first, our allies and partners can buzz off. We can deal with China bilaterally, one-on-one, superpower showdown, guys. I think the track record of the Trump administration on China speaks for itself that this is not a viable strategy Uh, because China has advantages in particular, it can wait out an American president that it does not like, or wait until that American president is in a difficult spot and needs a win because he's facing re-election or something like that, or he's facing a midterm, in order to get a deal and, a, and an escape hatch from a confrontation. So it's very hard to sustain a common position across administrations, particularly if you're switching Democrat to Republican. Uh, against a, a communist party that can they can hold the line. Now, there's also the fact that even though we import more from China than they import from us, we are very dependent on them in the same way that they're dependent on us. And imposing tariffs, as Trump did, just creates a bill that will have to be paid for by American families, in particular low-income families. So I don't think that's a viable strategy. But I also don't think it's a viable strategy to go to our allies and partners and say, look, it's time for choosing. You're either with us or you're with them. Because I think a number of countries, if forced to choose, would choose China. I don't think that's a very long list, but I think the list is getting longer as China gets richer and more powerful. And I think many countries, if they were asked to choose, would respond by banding together into a third block. There was an equivalent in the early Cold War, the non-aligned movement. But this time it would include the European. And they'd say, well, if you want to go down this slippery slope into a really scary confrontation with the Chinese, count us out. And so that would leave America friendless and without the leverage to really pressure China on the issues it cares about most. So the solution is you have to do enough diplomacy to get everyone on the same page and approach China with a common position. And you also have to recognize that allies and partners are not going to want to cooperate with you on that if they think that you are trying to get to total decoupling from China economically, technologically, financially, because a lot of these countries have interests in staying connected to, the, to China. So you need to pick and choose your issues. I think human rights is a very good one because it's so obvious and it's, it, it, it's, it cries out for more immorally for action. I think it's an easy way to get the Europeans on board. And I've made that argument in print. And that's number one. And I think number two, you can make a common set of regulations or a common set of standards for technology companies. And you can make that together with the Europeans and the Japanese, but also with the Indians and some others. By the way, that should all, those rules should also constrain American tech companies who have been able to run rampant in most of the world with minimal to no regulation. 
And then I guess the third thing you can do is, is Indo-Pacific, an idea that in this enormous maritime space where so much of the world economy is based and through which so much of the world's oil travels and trade and goods moves, that there should be a common understanding. Vessels should be able to go through international waters at will without anyone harassing them. And that means China can't build a bunch of reefs in the middle of the South China Sea and claim that it owns all of the ocean for hundreds of miles around and harass uh, ships and planes that try to pass through those waters. So you're basically saying that the the one path you see is being resigned or even fully accepting the idea of a bipolar world, but in a way that allows a, a, a more muscular nego- renegotiation and, and assertion of, of certain norms and principles of trade and of international interaction, etc. Yes, I think we're moving towards decoupling from China, inevitably, in some ways. I just don't see a way that Chinese technology companies, either hardware makers or software makers, are compatible with the, the kind of society and economy that we want in the United States, but also in Canada and Japan and Europe and in a lot of the rest of the world. It's just, it's not acceptable to have the CCP with a listening device in every home. It never will be. And as long as there's no way to verify that, that these regulations can be, can be abided by, and it will be very, very, very hard to do that, then the only solution can be moving towards decoupling. But I think more broadly, this new Cold War for lack of a better analogy, that we're entering now, is different in a lot of ways from the world in 1945 at the end of World War II. The United States and the Soviets had hardly any economic relationship at all. Right now, the economic relationship, the trading relationship between China and the United States is the most important in the world. We're not going to break that apart. I think we learned that lesson under Trump. And we need to figure out a way to protect our interests, to push back selectively, to work together with allies when we can, to try to set rules of the road that everyone, including us, will have to follow, and to take advantage of the fact that we are still very much interlinked with the Chinese through trade, to try to get some stuff done on issues where we have to work together, like climate change. So my last question is, I have kept using the word the West and, and following our conversation with, with Nadav Eyal. Is there even a meaningful... West anymore? Is that a, a useful concept in geopolitics today? Or is it, is it basically just the US and anybody who wants to join in and China who, and whoever wants to join in? The West, as I understand it, is the, the developed world, which would be, which are essentially all partners of the United States. It's the United States, it's essentially the NATO countries, which is the United States, Canada, and a bunch of European countries, uh, and Japan. South Korea to a certain extent, Australia and New Zealand. These countries are important because they represent together some huge percentage of the global economy, well more than half. So if they stand as one, and they make many of the products, the high-tech products that we think of as essential to our lives that we couldn't live without. So if they stand together, these countries stand together as one, they have a lot of leverage to get what they want. And I think there are areas, and I think human rights, Indo-Pacific freedom of navigation, tech are areas in which all of those countries could get to a common agreement. It's not going to be perfect. It's going to require a lot of diplomacy. But I think this is the objective of the Biden administration. Get this block of countries on board. 
And now we go into the future a month later, and we're back with Ike Fryman to talk about the Biden administration. Secretary of State Tony Blinken already had some uh, cross statements with uh, his uh, Chinese counterparts, and, and some say this went humiliatingly badly for uh, Blinken. Some might disagree, but it's clear that we are already on a collision path. What can we suss out about the stance that Biden is hoping to strike against China? What does it tell us about the, the future of global affairs? And how does that interplay with the Belt and Road Initiative? Last month in Anchorage, uh, the American and Chinese Secretary of State um, held their first bilateral meeting. It was, uh, by all accounts, unsuccessful. They threw insults at each other. They exceeded the speaking limit. Uh, the Chinese foreign minister said that the United States is not qualified to speak to China from a position of strength and pointed out that the United States has some nerve to accuse China of human rights abuses when it has allowed 500,000 Americans to die of COVID-19 in the past year. Not dying of COVID-19, the Chinese say, is a human right. So this is a sign that Chinese diplomacy is becoming increasingly emboldened. Uh, there's a sense uh, in China, but particularly in the outward facing parts of the Chinese Communist Party, that the country is on a roll, that its rise is unstoppable, that the United States has fundamental problems with its political system, and that it's now, it's now safe to start speaking more confidently. Uh, but the, the other side of this is at the same time as they're uh, lobbying verbal assaults at one another, there's a possibility of an unrelated and very dangerous uh, escalation over the island of Taiwan. Uh, Taiwan is quasi-protected by the United States under a law that falls short of a traditional alliance. The United States, formally speaking, doesn't recognize Taiwan. Taiwan doesn't technically claim it's an independent state, but it has operated autonomously for more than 70 years, and Xi Jinping wants it back. And that is, so he has said, uh, the single uh, overriding focus of his foreign policy. It's the single overriding doctrinal focus of the People's Liberation Army. And it's quite possible we see a very serious escalation leading to war in Taiwan in the next few years, probably not this year, but potentially, depending on how things go. Uh, the Japanese Prime Minister, Yoshihide Suga, is visiting uh, the United States for a summit at the White House next week. And that is going to be critical because the US and Japan need to adopt a new doctrine to deter China from invading Taiwan. And they need to do that in such a way that it doesn't lead China to invade immediately. So yeah, so that's that's the more general the, the more general take on what has happened in the last couple of couple of weeks. You know, nothing much. Just all of the navies operating naval exercises and in the East China Sea and chest thumping. Um, the Chinese, for example, have been flying swarms of drones around islands controlled by Taiwan in the South China Sea, and the Taiwanese have said that if any one of those drones crosses into their airspace, they'll shoot it down, that could start a war. Uh, the Chinese have also been making moves on some of Taiwan's outlying islands that are closer to the mainland. 
Xi Jinping's plan is to just build a bridge to one of them and dare Taiwan to stop him. So that's that's the sort of brinksmanship that's going on. And while most people in the know seem to think that's not going to lead to war this year, it's the single most risky geopolitical thing going on in the world. And it's easy to see how over the next five or six years, it could come become a Cuban Missile Crisis type situation. The People's Liberation Army is celebrating its 100th anniversary in 2027. And that is widely seen as the deadline by which Xi Jinping is going to want to get Taiwan back. I was just wondering if there is a connection between, I think you were saying that what's going on kind of now in that geopolitical situation isn't necessarily related or doesn't really intersect with One Belt, One Road. Not quite. I mean, there is a recognition in the United States and Japan that the Trump administration's strategy has failed, clearly uh, criticizing and insulting the Belt and Road as a predatory death trap thing has not worked. It has not dissuaded China from exporting all kinds of infrastructure, but particularly high-end digital infrastructure all around the world. And there's a recognition that the US and Japan have to do something more organized to make a competitive counteroffer. So expected at the summit at the White House next week between Biden and Suga, the Japanese prime minister, is going to be an announcement for a U.S.-Japan Belt and Road alternative that will fund, quote, high-quality infrastructure in the Indo-Pacific. So that will probably come with cheap financing offered by Japanese banks, which for various reasons are capable of offering ludicrously low-interest loans, and technology transfers to countries that play ball. So it's going to be a way to compete, not necessarily deal for deal with China, but to be in the arena as an active provider of infrastructure finance and technological help to try to make sure that these countries have some options. What would be some of the examples of the technological help, I assume, coming from the, the U.S. as well as Japan? Well, a big part is going to be green tech and renewables. Everyone, in theory, has signed the Paris Climate Accord. Everyone, in theory, has commitments to cut emissions under that agreement. Most countries haven't actually taken any steps to do that. But there's a lot that can be done in terms of making financing available and making technological transfers available so that countries, and I'm talking mostly about India here, but also some of developing Southeast Asia, like Indonesia, gigantic economies that power themselves mostly on coal, to upgrade to things like wind and solar, uh, hydroelectric, even nuclear. There's a lot of technical stuff under the hood that happens there. It's not just buying a solar panel and setting it up. You've got to plug it into your grid. You've got to update your grid so it's capable of you know, getting power from the sun sometimes. And then when the sun doesn't shine, shifting to other sources. And that's just one example of a, a high-tech system that the Chinese can do very well, but the US and Japanese can also, uh, where there might be some tech transfers involved. And then particularly in the digital domain, there's a realization that China is speeding ahead. There's going to be a focus on, for example, making sure that Chinese uh, digital payment startups or ride-hailing apps or e-commerce apps that are in wide use in Southeast Asia have Western-backed alternatives that won't just be sucking up all of the users' data. So that's not to say that these Chinese apps will be shut out of the markets, but they will have a competitor 
in some countries for the first time. It's interesting when you're talking about the the green tech infrastructure. I mean, there's clearly echoes of that as well in the infrastructure bill that came out recently. And there's so much R uh, money put aside for R and D. I wonder if that's you know partly uh, influenced by this desire to uh, potentially export whatever technologies are going to be developed in the in the U.S. as part of this kind of diplomatic strategy. Definitely. So there's this term called industrial policy, which for the last like 40 years or so has been basically a dirty word because it goes against free markets. Industrial policy is the idea that as a government, you pick certain industries that are strategic and you give them money, particularly when they're in their infant stage so that they can grow. Like you make big upfront investments uh, to facilitate the adoption of the internet, for example, or this is an, an East Asian model of industrial development, like China wants to build cars, if they open their market so that people, their Chinese people can buy Japanese cars, they'll buy Japanese cars because Japanese cars are better for the price. But if they keep trade barriers up and give lots of subsidies and support to their local car makers, maybe eventually they'll be able to make a Chinese car that can compete. And so the United States is now embracing industrial policy, particularly in high-tech domains where there's a realization that China's catching up. One example of this is semiconductors, the little microscopic chips that make our iPhones and toasters and planes go, uh, where the Chinese are trying to catch up and pumping billions of dollars into this industry. And we need to maintain a competitive advantage. So there's going to be this year, probably a big appropriation from Congress to help major semiconductor companies set up facilities to make in the United States. And so some of this will be about exporting US-made high-tech stuff. Uh, but a lot of it, in terms of the infrastructure bill, is financing R&D uh, so that you're driving down prices. Maybe we find a way to shave 10% off of the cost of making a solar panel. Eventually, that gets passed on to the customer as, as a cheaper product. And so as the solar panel get cheaper and cheaper and cheaper, it makes more economic sense for a developing country with super limited resources to buy solar as opposed to coal. So in the long-term way, we can support the world's green transition if we invest in green R&D. And that is, I think, a big part of the Biden plan. But that's not going to feed through into specific Belt and Road style infrastructure investments for a few years. Mm. It's pretty fascinating. I mean, it'll also be interesting to see if if these efforts are enough to overcome the kind of um, disadvantage, I guess, that kind of happened after the this kind of vaccine policy that China has been wielding. So it seems so um, uh, to its to its own advantage. Uh, so I, I'm curious to know if this will offset that um, misstep from us. Oh well, there will be a huge U.S. Japan, uh, not just the U.S. and Japan. The the U.S. is trying to make a not really alliance because it's not a formal military bloc, but like essentially a, a team of four like-minded democracies in the Indo-Pacific called the Quad, the US, Japan, Australia, and India. And together, it's a pretty formidable combo. India is the world's most populous country, the world's most populous democracy. The United States is the world's largest economy. They've got many different assets. And strategically, there's a lot that they can offer. Uh, the Quad had a big meeting uh, a few weeks ago, and one of their conclusions was that they were going to 
produce and donate essentially over a billion doses of uh, high quality COVID vaccines to developing countries. There's also a program run by the World Health Organization called COVAX, which is basically the vaccine pool for the world's most vulnerable. And the Trump administration typically didn't participate. And the Chinese, in order to get you know a good headline, signed on. But they Chinese haven't contributed anything because they want to give all of their doses bilaterally and have a, you know an Air China plane arrive on the tarmac and make the president of whatever country they're giving the, selling the vaccines to go to the airport and grovel to get the to get the doses. But once the U.S. Uh, gets mass vaccination at home, which it looks like it's just a few weeks away from doing, there's going to be a massive, massive supply that the U.S. will have to distribute to the rest of the world, and it's going to do it through COVAX. So U.S. vaccine diplomacy is about to start ramping up, and you'll be hearing a lot about that over the summer. Ike, thank you so much. Of course. Thank you both so much. Thank you for listening to Uncertain Things. Follow us on uncertain.substack.com or wherever you get your podcasts. If you feel like getting into an argument with us, join us at UncertainPod on Twitter or Instagram. If generosity smites you, tell your friends and enemies and give us a five-star review on Apple Podcasts. Until next time, stay sane.